Hello, my name's Tina Quinn and you're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. This week, we're bringing you a very special in conversation with one of Australia's most accomplished foreign correspondents, the great Philip Williams. This week, he finishes up a very eventful 46 years in broadcast. Phil started work at the ABC in Canberra in 1975 as a stagehand before moving into news. His illustrious career has included time spent as the 7.30 Reports Canberra reporter, an extensive stint travelling rural Australia with the programme Countrywide, and he was also one of Australian Story's founding producers. However, it's Phil's work as a foreign correspondent for which he has become best known. His very first posting was to Tokyo, Japan in 1990, and he's since gone on to bring some of the world's biggest events into the living rooms of many Australians. September 11th in the US, the ensuing war in Iraq, the Arab Spring, the Beslan school siege, London's Grenfell Tower fire, where he filmed a whole 7.30 story on with his mobile phone, Brexit, the rise of Donald Trump, natural disasters across Asia and the Pacific, North America and Europe. Phil's done it all. For the last four and a half years, he's been the ABC's chief foreign correspondent, a role that was created specifically for him. And on the eve of his retirement, he has very kindly agreed to join us here in studio. Phil Williams, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks very much. Now, Phil, your career has been 46 years long, 40 of those years at the ABC. You started working for the public broadcaster in 1975 in Canberra. Uh, Well, what a year to show up in Canberra. Uh, 75 was a very turbulent year for Australia with the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Tell us about your experiences back then and also what the ABC was like in, in 1975. I imagine it was a very different place. A completely. It's a different planet, in fact. Uh, you know, right. 1975, you had people uh, either slotted into radio or TV. You didn't do both. You didn't right. cross over. Within radio, you had radio news people. That was their job. You had radio current affairs people. That was their job. So there's uh, there's not the, the fluid nature of exchange mm. of people's roles and whatever. And and you didn't have to do, you know, 150 different things each day, which you now have to do. So it's actually harder being a journalist these days, I think. In some respects, uh, easier in the sense that you have the full resources of the net to, to, to mm-hmm. quickly reach. You know, you wanted to know something back then. You literally had to go to the library to find something else. Maybe the parliamentary library, which is where I, work, uh, I worked in Canberra, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't have those ready sources of, of information. So that's where the old buggers really came in. You know, the, the people you worked with, they, they could tell you the stories. They could give you the backstories. And they could fill you in on that sort of thing. And suddenly... Uh, at 64, I find myself the old bugger. So um, you know, <laughs> I feel a, a certain sense of obligation to try and give back. That's what I tried to do over, over time. And, um, you know, I have received as much as I've given from the young people because there's such a, a brilliant, talented young uh, cohort of people coming through, especially at the ABC. And who were some of the old buggers that, uh, uh, in your day that, that sort of gave back to you in a sense? Oh, gosh, you know what? I, I keep getting asked this, you know, specific names and whatever, and I don't like to do that because right. because I'll forget somebody and, yeah. you know, people that are important and significant, I'll leave, I'll leave them out and offend them and, you know. Of course. Uh, so I don't like to do that. Um, but look, as, as you go on in your career, you are the product of those that have gone before you. Those that have gone before you have established the rules, the framework, the, the, the philosophy, uh, the, the do's and don'ts. 
and that's very important. Uh, you know that you you shouldn't you should be quite sort of um, respect uh, yeah. those that have gone before you because you know that you may not have uh, enormous regard for them at a personal level, or you may not love all of their journalism, but they are part of that. Um, the continuity of Australian journalism, of which you are now a part, and and you now hold that that sacred duty to to impart those stories as honestly and as well as you possibly can. May I ask who the figures were that loomed large at that time to sort of set a bit of a scene? Look, you know, Barry Cassidy was uh, was on the scene then. Um, uh, there were um, I'm trying to re- most of them have passed. You see, that's mm. most of them are gone. As you can imagine, that's you know. 46 years ago. Uh, so in actual fact, only the young young folk like me are still around from that period. Um, but look, you know, the, our bureau chief at the time had was is on the wall at Parliament House in the, in the class photo uh, of 1945. Wow. So that's a hell of a continuity. That's only two generations. And you go from 1945, and he was a journalist before then, uh, to me in 1921, at, at, at 2021, mm-hmm. and, and that's an incredible, um, you know, longevity in just two generations. And I, and I feel that sense of history, and I feel that sense of of being a part of something far, far greater than than myself. Uh, tell me about the the Whitlam dismissal of of seventy. Oh well, that was a very dramatic moment. I wasn't <laughs> a reporter then. I just started with the ABC, mm-hmm. and I was a camera assistant. And I I was I was very politically aware in those days, and mm-hmm. very interested. And I rang up. Uh, the the office as soon as I heard what was going on, and I said oh, I'll come in, and they said oh no need no need no don't worry about it. I thought you're joking. I was really cross. I was really <laughs> angry. I said and I hopped in my Volkswagen Beetle, and uh, tore down to Parliament House. But in a way, it was good because I could be an observer. I didn't have to work. I was watching what was going on and, and seeing this incredible anger and this groundswell of uh, uh, a fury uh, in the crowd that developed outside of. Uh, old Parliament House, because just Parliament House in those days, and you get you know the, there's the the famous Gough Whitlam uh, sp- speech on the Parliament House uh, steps, uh, but uh, the, what one thing that God remi- save the Queen, God's God save the Queen, because nothing will save <laughs> the Governor General, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, but you know I remember uh, one particular uh, coalition senator. And uh, giving the finger to the crowd, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and the crowd was all yelling, "Jump, jump, jump!" Because it was a couple of stories <laughs> oh, <God>. up. <laughs> so, very different time, wasn't very, it? Very, very different time. But uh, you can't underestimate the 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 anger, the palpable anger yeah. that was in so many people's minds. Of course, there was the other side of Australia thought it was great that hated mm. Whitlam, mm. felt he'd run it into the ground financially, saw him, you know, as a socialist threat to uh, to to democracy. So it was a two two sides of that story, but in Canberra, very much a Labor town, and has mm. remained so. Uh, there was that very very um, quick and and very vociferous uh, reaction to to what was going on. Mm. Well, they were very. The Whitlam dismissal was his whole government. If you look at the years before, it was a very turbulent three years. It, it was uh, very dramatic. Yeah, but you know, uh, he did a lot of stuff. Mm. You know, mm. um, Medicare comes mm. from him. Uh, support for unmarried mothers comes from him. Mm. So many things were enacted in that short space of time. And don't forget, he faced three elections, mm. lost the last one. Uh, so 
yes, it was turbulent and very dramatic, you know, made more so by this so-called Kemlani affair, which mm-hmm. was an attempt uh, by Rex Connor, who was the uh, Minerals and Energy Minister, to buy back the farmers, he said, basically to, to uh, buy all the uh, resources in Australia, the natural resources, and invest them back into the Commonwealth so that the, all of Australians got the benefit from the iron ore or whatever it was that was being sold. Uh, but he went through a very dodgy kind of uh, 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 financier called Kemlani. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, of course, was enormous fodder for the, for the tabloids of the time and was uh, the beginning of the end for the Whitlam government. Sort of the final undoing. Absolutely. Well, you've done a very, uh, you've done a number of very different roles in the ABC, including being stagehand. It sounds like yep. uh, the day of the Whitlam dismissal, you're more of a photojournalist. Well, kind of, <laughs> but 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 yeah, not on that day. Uh, yeah, no 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 um, phones, of course, mobile no. phones in those days, so no no actual photos from that day. How did you make the move to journalism? Did you did you have a plan, or did journalism find you? No, I was definitely after it. Yeah. Um, but you know, my view was get into the ABC or get in somewhere and uh, work it out after that, which is what I did. My first job was uh, one day's work, and I was uh, employed because of bad set design. It was a program (laughs) called State of the Nation, Mm -hmm. and uh, the set was too much to handle for one person. Uh, So uh, Mike Neal, who was the the staging chief, um, said he needed someone else, and and I got that job, and, you know, 46 years later, here I am. But I always intended to be a journalist. In the meantime, I became a sound recordist, a camera assistant under the great uh, Peter DeVries, uh, mm-hmm. cameraman, uh, uh, and became a film editor, uh, which was a great discipline to learn. So in the in the end, I think it was great sort of five years learning the uh, the craft from beginning to end uh, and and really giving myself, learning some skills that have, have been, you know, instrumental in my life ever since. But it was a local radio station that gave me the break, 2CC, God bless them. And uh, I joined what was then a five journalist, uh, five journalists in the local newsroom. Can you believe it these days? You know, you're lucky if you get one, uh, let alone five. But uh, it was a very vibrant um, local uh, radio scene then for, for news. Mm. And in the old Parliament House, when I started there, uh, there were, I think, about 23 commercial news journalists. Now I think there'd be two or three. So that's been a very big and, and sad change. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a, it was a really competitive, uh, exciting time to be in Old Parliament House. But, mm. you know, it still is, whoever you're working for. But unfortunately, those jobs have largely gone. I was speaking with uh, Glenn Daniel, who's has had a very long and storied career within commercial radio, uh, mainly. But he, you know, talks about when uh, being sent over to Rwanda in the mid '90s with Today FM to cover what was, you know, going on over there, the atrocities that were happening there. I mean, that would never happen today. No. Commercial radio stations would never send a foreign correspondent over. Ab- absolutely not. Or, or wouldn't have one really. You wouldn't have one to go, no. and uh, wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. And that that's. That's sad, but that's mm. the reality of where the money is now. Mm. Uh, clearly, there was a lot more money in, in commercial radio in mm. those days. Uh, so that's that's been a huge change. In fact, I was supposed to go on that tr- uh, a trip too, 
right. with the with the Australian uh, Army in mm-hmm. uh, one of their planes, and I had eight jabs in one day and was ready to go the next day. Mark Colvin, the great departed Mark Colvin, uh, could get in faster because he was based in London. So he was sent instead, and that shaped his life and ultimately shaped his demise, sadly, of course, yeah. uh, because he got very sick there, and it was a sickness that then cursed his life uh, right up until the end. So, you know, these little sort of moments that... Um, sliding door moments. Totally, totally. That could have been me or, or not, maybe neither of us. You know, it's just one of those things that, uh, especially if you go to these uh, places where there is there are horrendous things happening or there's you know a lot of disease prevalent or whatever there are these dangers and you know really really sadly it uh, just caught up with mark well, we'll I, I want to definitely talk a little bit more about that and the downsides of, of, of working as a foreign correspondent. Uh, first of all, though, I, you've mentioned, you know, your start in regional radio and how much commercial stations, have, have newsrooms have changed. Tell us about what you also learnt working in regional Australia. Well, look, you know, the thing about um, regional Australia is you better be on your game. Yeah. You better be able to convince people that you're authentic and that you're not out to shaft them. And that's a skill you ha- that, that sticks with you. Because, you know, I'm not saying that people in metropolitan areas can't pick a fraud, but they certainly can in the bush. And uh, your ability to convince and, and guide uh, and cajole in a gentle way uh, those people and, and to tell their stories to you that sticks with you forever. And that went on for me. I was with Countrywide, which was a a, a, re, a current affairs program. It's kind of like Landline, but it had mm-hmm. a, a better time slot. Mm-hmm. And um, that, was, that worked brilliantly for me later because I learned, don't try any, don't be tricky here. You know, you've got to be straight and honest and, you know, tell it like it is and tell their stories uh, honestly or you are, you're not going to get through the front door. So you know, that, that was very, very helpful. I think you'll find a lot of the uh, successful foreign correspondents and the camera, camera people uh, have come from regional areas. Mm-hmm. And the other thing it teaches you is you have to be resourceful because you have to do it all. You have to get out there, shoot it, cut it, what, present it, whatever it is. And I think that um, is a very, very useful skill to have as well. How many years did you spend working in, in, in regional Australia? Oh, well, I, I was on the road uh, probably for about six years doing that mm-hmm. and then had one very inglorious year. Well, it was glorious in one way, as a, in a holiday show. Oh, right. <laughs> the holiday show with Geraldine Doog, the great Geraldine Doog. The great Geraldine. The great Geraldine, which is the first time I'd worked. A good friend of Fourth Estate. <laughs> oh, yes, a good friend and, and uh, a good friend to journalism in Australia mm. because, you know, I think there is no no. No person that's made a greater contribution uh, to Australian journalism than, than Geraldine. I think many would agree with you. And, yeah. you know, not, not only that, but, uh, you know, the, the warmth of her heart is just, you know, you can, you can, you can roast marshmallows with it. <laughs> I always say about Geraldine that she uh, is exactly the same off air that she is on air from, from my experience. Which, I which think. is yeah. incredibly effusive uh-huh. and uh, There's not interested. many around like that. No, and, and interested. I mean, usually, you know, when you reach a certain age, uh, you get a bit jaded and a bit sceptical about life and, and people and things. And she treats everyone with great respect and the stories with great respect and with the, great, with the enthusiasm as though mm-hmm. she's just come out of, you know, just come out of J school and this is her first job. And that's, you know, that's one of the many things I love about her. 
Well, I think the other thing that really comes across about Geraldine is, is her curiosity, as you've just mentioned. How important do you think curiosity plays into journalism? Do you think there's a lot of journos out there that have they approach something, their mind made up? I think you have to be a curious cat to be in yeah. this business. It's really, really vital. You have to generally like people, mm-hmm. I think, um, because, you know, you, I, I just think it helps to get people uh, interested in telling their stories. But curiosity is a baseline mm-hmm. for this business. If you're not a very curious person, maybe look at doing something else because this is not the job for you. Um, and, and also flexible. You have to be flexible because... You might think you're on a particular story bent or a process and something else comes up. You can't just stick to that, your, your, you know, the, way, the path you were going to, to go. You have to be flexible to shift gear. And you might see something or just hear something that's different and it takes you in a different direction. You've got to be able to do that. And especially with interviewing. When you're interviewing, you've got your questions. Yeah, you've got your set questions. You can't just rely on those alone. You have to listen to what's being said, like you're listening to me now, <laughs> uh, because because there'll be things maybe that I that that people say that take you in a completely different, different or unexpected direction. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's um, good to sometimes step away from the notes and 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 go with. Yeah, absolutely. So when I'm doing an interview, I will have uh, just topic. Just topic things that I want to cross. Now, how I get there or whatever is is completely fluid, um, and I want to tick them off. But mainly, I want to listen, hear what's said, and then then spark my next question from that. Usually, usually I don't always succeed. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I've had my duds. Believe me. <laughs> well, I mean, there's certain people that um, uh, make it very clear you need to stick to your <laughs> questions. <laughs> That's true. That don't, that don't encourage great. Um, no. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, no. Okay, so you, you started at the ABC as a stagehand and then became a news journal, but how did you make the jump to being a foreign correspondent? Uh, look, very easily because it was my passion. You know, right. this is where I wanted to be. Um, when, my, when my parents uh, gave me at about age nine or ten this little tiny little recorder, it was before cassettes. It was a little, right. little tape-to-tape thing. Had two and a half minutes that used to run on it. And I used to make do, do fake um, reports. Often they were <laughs> from, from foreign places. You know, I was emulating what I was hearing on the radio from, from ABC reporters. Right. We didn't have TV where I was at the, in those days. Where did you grow up? Can I ask? Uh, Armidale in northern New South Wales, right. the first 10 years. And mm-hmm. then, then we moved to Canberra. So, mm-hmm. um, so it, it, that, that, you know, I just had that that hunger to do that from a very, very young age and, you know, finally got there and it was all and better than I expected, you know, I'd hoped for. Um, not always easy, you know, really, really tough times and, you know, tough emotionally and times when, you know, it did overwhelm me. Um, but the privilege to be able to tell your people, your, you know, tribe, as I like to call it, um, uh, what you're seeing and, and interpret that and see it through Australian eyes for them is just something very precious indeed. And, you know, I've just had the, the most wonderful privilege to be able to do that for so long. What was your first assignment? It would have been in Japan. Right. And because uh, I was, my first one was Tokyo uh, in 
1990. But in those days, Tokyo occupied the space that China does in, in the Australian psyche now. It was, it was the, the big beast in, 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 um, in the world. It was the, the economy was going gangbusters. Mm-hmm. People were a little afraid, I think, of the Japanese people because they seemed to be superhuman in the productivity and, and uh, the amount of um, Japan money. Japan was going was to being... take over the world at that time. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, yeah. and then that, you know, fizzled away. Um, and now that's that's China it occupies that space. But you know there was a huge appetite in Australia for anything about Japan. So I had no trouble selling selling my uh, stories uh, back to Australia at that time. How did that assignment come up? Uh, how did to sorry? How did that posting come up? I should say. Oh, the, the competitive process. Um, uh, Trevor Borman, the great Trevor Borman, mm-hmm. uh, was my competitor. I was I had come. I was with the Seven Thirty Report. Mm-hmm. He was with uh, News. Um, news didn't want me. 7.30 didn't want him. So at the end, we had a job off. We had to swap jobs <laughs> and see who uh, see who won. Anyway, I, I did actually win that, but then he shortly after got the Middle East. So we both, we both ended up uh, as foreign correspondents. So you start in 1990, as we've already established in Tokyo, but fairly early on as uh, a foreign correspondent, you had... A very scary moment. I'm thinking of Seoul in, in 1992. Yes, yes. When you were covering the riots. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, very intense riots, you know, several hundred thousand people involved in these mm-hmm. pitch battles uh, between mainly students and workers and the police. And there were ideological battles, left, right, that sort of thing. Uh, but but very violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that violence, and we're talking petrol bombs and iron bars, there was never supposed to be a death. No, there was a kind of a unwritten law. You didn't. You could injure someone, but you couldn't kill them. Anyway, a student was killed by mm-hmm. the police, and there was a, a funeral held uh, for this uh, unfortunate person. And we were we were in the middle of a procession, uh, a couple of hundred thousand uh, people, and it came to a pinch point under a railway bridge. And as we were about to go under that, we had made a very bad strategic error, and we'd placed ourselves in the middle of that crowd not on the edge. And the danger is, of course, if something goes bad, you're too far from, from being able to get away from it. So somebody, a uh, poor woman, uh, doused herself with lighter fluid, set herself alight on the, on the railway bridge and jumped into that crowd, just about two or three people in front of us, and she died. Uh, now, the crowd was already highly emotional and all they saw was a foreign film crew uh, we were foreigners. We must have been responsible in some way. This has happened right there, then and there. And they started to lay into us, started to beat us up. And I thought, well, we all thought well, we might not get out of this because we were 20 deep either side. Luckily for us, we were right at uh, a medical school, uh, was right at that uh, spot. And the medical um, students, in fact, formed a flying wedge and got the poor girl out. Unfortunately, they couldn't save her. And then they did the same for us. And we were being punched and kicked and, and whatever on the way out, but they got us out. And, you know, the worst we, we ended up with were, were um, you know, the, the bruises and the scratches and whatever. I think it could have been a whole lot worse. Uh, but what it taught me was a couple of things. Uh, your, your physical, loca- the way you place yourself is very, very important. And, and you always need an escape plan. And the second is be very wary of crowds, and I still am, because they're often led, poorly led by the biggest idiot, 
that happens to be in the room. And uh, they can do irrational things. And, um, and that's why, you know, to this day, I actually don't like being in crowds. 1992, there was, there was no mindfulness or there was at least, you know, very little awareness of PTSD. Mm. None at all. I don't think it had been defined at that point. Frank really? Ockberg it wasn't even a... Okay. I don't think it had been officially yeah, defined by Frank Ockberg. Yep. How did you get yourself back together and what was it like being back on the road uh, after something like that? that? Well, you know, that was, that was not so difficult in a right. sense that, that it was a physical assault. We got over it um, and we were, we were okay. And the expectation in those days was you just get on with it. You know, there's, uh, you've been through something, you're not hurt, you get back on that horse. And we did. And, and that was okay. There are other events that happened later, like the Beslan, which was the attack on the school, uh, with all the school kids uh, were, yes. were killed by a terrorist attack in southern Russia, and I was there with others from the ABC. Do you remember uh, the that. year of that? I, I can. That was uh, nine. Uh, that would have been two thousand and four. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. was very. Yeah, I, I can remember that. Yeah. Um, event. It was. Um, it's a shocking horrific. event. Yeah. It's just a shocking event. Yeah. And we were there and, you know, we saw, you know, saw the results and we're there with the shooting. It was, a, it was that perfect storm of a horrendous story involving children and you yourself are in physical danger because there are bullets and bombs flying. Uh, and that's, that's the perfect storm for a PTSD event. And that's what happened to me. And I didn't know I had it. I, it was, it was, I was only, you know, f- vaguely aware of it. Uh, didn't think it applied to me, but my family made made me aware that I was a changed person. I knew I was changed, but um, they made me aware. And from that moment, we could sort of get together and and start to repair things, which which happened luckily because you know I didn't want my career defined by that moment. I didn't want it stopped mm-hmm. by that moment. And you know, luckily for me, it hasn't been. And luckily for the rest of us. <laughs> Now, your first posting to Europe was yeah. in 2001? Yeah, that's right. Beginning of 2001 to, to London. To London? Uh, yep. And again, you know, uh, how lucky was I? You know, it was just a fantastic time to be in Europe. Yeah. Uh, with so much change, the Iraq war happened. Well, I was about to say 9-11. You were in London 9/11, during that time. Yeah, 9-11 mm-hmm. happened um, and I was in London mm-hmm. and <laughs> the first thing I did, uh, I, I always carried my passport. So yeah. I just, no clothes, already. I just had my kit, my, my um, radio gear and whatever and hopped in a cab and went straight out to the airport to Heathrow. Right. And tried to catch a plane to the States. Uh, well, by then the air, airspace was shut down. Mm-hmm. I'd heard there was a, a, a plane being uh, rented by... Um, a couple of the big British broadcasters and I at another airport went there. Anyway, I think I did seven trips to the airport before we finally actually got got there via Montreal Right. four days later. Uh, but yes, I got to report that major event and, and that was, I still, that's still surreal for me. I right. still have not got my head quite around that, um, even though, you know, I I saw it all. I saw the evidence. I saw the hole. I saw the. It was still, you know, fires and 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 spoke to many people about it. But it just all seems like a, a weird dream to me. Uh, and some, you know, some some stories just stick with you in that way. It's funny how that story I think sticks with a lot of people. And three thousand dead is horrific. Absolutely, no doubt, no question. The way it happened, it was also appalling. It, it's funny to note though that. 
you know, many more die uh, in, in many other wars and uh, in, oh. in many other, you know, horrific, all, all around yeah. the world each day. Yet that is something, and it, I mean, it stays with me. I can, it was a huge news event, obviously. It's something that definitely, I think there was something about that story that shaped and changed the world. It certainly did and meant, you know, it, it flowed from that, of mm. course, uh, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which we're just now uh, pulling out of. And of course, it, that doesn't change the situation for the Afghanis. It, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is a more terrible days ahead, I fear, for that country. Um, so that's unresolved. You know, the Iraq war was, uh, you know, not entirely separated from that mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so a lot happened because of that particular mm-hmm. attack. And you know, I remember going out to the airport and listening to a, a shock jock on uh, one of the uh, London radio stations saying, this is going to change the face of, West, of Western civilization." And I was thinking, oh, what a load of rubbish. Mm. And you know what? He was right yeah. in a sense. He really was right. Uh, it did change you know, the West's relationship with with the world, it, it created a lot more conflict mm. and um, still unresolved conflicts going on. Uh, so, you know, these, it, it was, even though, as you, as you rightly say, it wasn't in itself the biggest uh, loss of life or whatever, mm. uh, it did have that dramatic effect because this is the United States you're talking about. Yeah. You know, this is the most powerful military uh, uh, country in the world. And they were not going to sit back and not do mm. anything. No. And, you know, the, the domino effect of all those, of the things that w- came after that are, are still echo- echoing now and people are still dying now. Mm. I think, yeah, as you say, the, the repercussions, I think, because of, of, of which country it was that was attacked, uh, had a, a, a big part to play. I also think, again, because of it, it was the United States and, uh, it, you know, they've really seeped into Western culture and Absolutely. It's, it's such a part and of we're every... we're so aligned and we, we, we identify yeah. so much with the States and, and those so images, much culture comes yeah. from the United States. Yeah, and, and those images were just... Incredibly powerful. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. powerful. You know, you think now of those pictures of the planes going in, it, it looks like a B-grade movie, you know. It looks like something that's been done on a green screen, you know. It just doesn't look real, but, um, yeah, it was. You still can, get quite... Yeah, oh, I still get chills absolutely. watching it, to be absolutely. honest. Absolutely. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me too. It, that, that never changes. No. Yeah. Um, but look, you know, going back to what you said before, it really does matter where you die and how you die mm. as to whether you get recognition or support or whatever, you know. Uh, you know, I covered um, the earthquake in Haiti. Right. Now, that was a terrible, terrible event. Up to 300,000 people died in that shocking, you know, apocalyptic uh, occasion. And, um, you know, certainly there was, there, was a, there was aid came in and there was certainly a lot of international attention, but not now, you know. Not, no one cares about the families that were shattered by that event or the poverty that's still created by that event or the people still are homeless because of that event. Um, if that same thing had happened at that scale, you know, to a, to a major city in Europe or the US or, or Australia... Um, we would still be on it. We would still be caring. So, yeah, I'm afraid there, there is this sort of order of uh, mm. importance uh, to, to who you are and, 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 why, and how you died uh, that uh, seems to uh, then uh, contribute to how people feel about it or remember it or don't remember it or care or don't care um, years later. 
when you're covering an event like the earthquake in Haiti, does that make you even more determined to cover it in a way or, or give it the platform that it so rightly deserves and and to make the world really sit up and pay attention? Yeah, absolutely, because you may be one of the few organisations that are actually telling the world what's happening here and why they should care and why they should you know, put a few bucks into that um, appeal, which does materially then affect the outcomes for the victims of those of those crises. Um, so, yeah, huge responsibility. I've always felt that. You know, I remember going into a, a place called Ormoc in the southern Philippines, and it was my first experience of, of mass death, and there were thousands of people in this, this uh, city uh, killed within a couple of minutes by a flash flood. And everywhere you went, there were bodies, there were people digging for their relatives. Um, you know, there, was, there were horrendous sights. Um, and every time the, uh, the tide came in, it, there would be a tide of bodies that would be left on the beach. You know, it was really confronting stuff. But not many, no many had been there. They didn't identify with that place. They didn't identify with those people. So you had this great responsibility to, to tell people just how bad it is and bring that humanity um, home. Because in the end, you know, we are all equally human. We have the, that same, you know desire to for security and food and shelter and all those basics that we take for granted but in those situations isn't necessarily there that the help isn't necessarily there because nations like like you know in the philippines especially in those days didn't have the resources necessarily to put into rescuing everyone and helping everyone at that time so yep it's 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 a definite responsibility. It's one I feel very strongly, and it's, I'm sure it's one I've failed on on many occasions, but I still, I still have that desire to do it. Returning a little bit to uh, you, you did two postings to London as, uh, as a yep. foreign correspondent, as a Europe correspondent. Yep. So from 2001 to 2005, and then it was... 2008 to the end of 15, so yeah. So 12 years all up. It's a pretty good run. You the, Very good run and, and very interesting years in Europe. What yep. did you... I mean, you, you arrived, it was Tony Blair, it was New Labour. Yep. Obviously, because of 9-11 and, and the years that followed, uh, Europe, especially the UK, was very much gripped with terrorism and fighting terrorism. And yeah, and that was that was very much dominated. It had been towards the end of my first posting as well. We'd mm. had very serious terrorist attacks uh, in Spain, for example, right. on the trains in, in uh, Spain. 200 people killed there, which I covered um, extensively. Um, but... Yeah, it was really winding. It was really starting to ratchet up in Europe. Right. And, and of course, you know, you had later on, you had the Syrian war, mm-hmm. which then forced mass uh, migration mm-hmm. from Syria, Turkey, uh, and then into Europe. And, you know, which is something you never expect to see in your life. You know, this, it was, it was a, how I imagined post, post Second World War Europe was, where you had people displaced all over Europe. And no means of getting home other than walking. And so you you were witness to literally thousands and thousands of people just walking past you in these long lines, trying to search for those, you know, fundamentals of life, security, food, shelter, and a better better life and a better future for them and their kids. Uh, That was a very profoundly moving experience. And some of the, the people you met along the way were so humbling. You know, I remember um, stopping a guy 
and uh, so and he was he came came up to me actually. We were filming. He said, "Where am I?" I said, "You're in Hungary." And he said, "Oh, really? I didn't know." He said, "Yes, it's about a hundred meters down that railway line. They were following railway lines." And uh, and I asked him about where he'd come from, and he'd been from a wealthy family in Syria, uh, but they'd pretty much lost everything. And I said, "What have you What have you got?" And he said, "Don't make me cry." And uh, he just opened his plastic bag. And there was a bottle of water and a packet of biscuits. And that's what that guy had in his life. That's what he... And he was just looking for a decent, secure life there. Now, that pause is because I was caught. Mm. I, that took me back. I took me back in the moment. So you see, these things never quite leave you. You know, no. you, they, they're, they're with you. They're, they're your children, good and bad. <laughs> and some, occasionally they'll rise and bite you. Or just remind you, um, but I'm not. Af- I'm not. Af- I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of the emotion that comes with the consequences of the, wor- of the work. I think I'd be far more worried and far more afraid if I felt nothing. Uh, I think um, uh, having th- that reaction is a good human reaction, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad for it. I think it's a great driver for for, for many of the great uh, foreign correspondents. It's it, it's what gets them out of bed every day. One person's story that really um, grabs me was that of Marie Colvin's. And, oh yes, you know, I had the she, privilege of meeting her once. Really? Yeah, Tell we us were about on a, that. Or we were on a uh, chemical weapons course just before the Iraq War at a place called Salisbury. It was a, mm-hmm. a an army. Um, an army base, and we, we. So this is after she'd been blinded. Yes, it was, she'd, had, she'd been blinded in one eye. Yeah, and she'd only recently returned uh, after a lot of rehabilitation, mm-hmm. and so there was this woman, formidable woman, with mm. the with the eye patch, and I tried to engage her about that, mm. and her past. She wouldn't have a bar of it. She did not want to go there, and I just backed right, right. off straight away. Um, I, and then, of course, you know, she was uh, an incredible um, person, an incredibly courageous person that mm. went into the most dangerous situations. situations went in furthest frankly, and stayed the longest. And, yep. Yeah. Frankly, places I would not have gone myself. I did not have the courage to do that uh, and then paid that horrendous price where it, it appears she was deliberately targeted along with others. Um, yeah. And the, but, but look, there's a very big difference between her and me, uh, the very big difference uh, is that she was a war correspondent. She defined herself that way. Mm-hmm. She That's what she did. Uh, I'm not. I was a correspondent that occasionally covered wars. Mm-hmm. And there's a very big difference. I didn't seek that out. I didn't enjoy it in particular. Of course, if it came, if it came to it, I, I, I did the job. Uh, but yeah, she was uh, a very, very special, one-of-a-kind uh, person who again never lost her sense of humanity, never lost the focus of what was what it was all about. Always spoke of the not just the, the strategic and the shifting sands, but always focusing on the people who were suffering. And boy, was she in the thick of it, you know, especially in that that uh, those last uh, few weeks in Syria. It was. It seemed to be her driving force, the actual humanity behind the story, and that. That is what I think made her work so remarkable. And she actually did in some ways change the, the, the world and she changed outcomes because of her reporting. Yes, that's right. And, and that shows the, the absolute power of that type of reporting and mm. getting in there and bearing witness to, to the worst 
but you know, it's, it can come at a terrible cost, personal cost. And that's not just a cost for you, it's a cost for your family. Uh, well, I was going to ask about that. I think you've obviously pointed out that you're not a war correspondent. You're a foreign correspondent and you've you've spoken of the differences uh, between the two. Uh, but you've still gotten yourself into some pretty dicey situations. Yep. You're a family man with yes. a, a deep well of empathy. <laughs> what, what made you... <laughs> What made you get on a, a plane each time and, and leave friends and families behind? Well, fortunately, um, my wife was a journalist and, ah, and uh, that, <laughs> helpful. that helped enormously. She completely understood yeah. the sort of pressures and, and why I did what I did. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen you know, enormous pressures on marriages where um, that hasn't been understood. Or, mm-hmm. So I was very, very lucky. And my kids grew up with it. So it was just normal that dad wouldn't be there for your birthday or would be or, or they didn't they didn't understand you know exactly what i was doing a lot of the time i didn't go into detail about some of the dicey situations it was i didn't want to worry them and scare them uh, that was pointless and uh you know it's not even my i didn't do, always tell my wife everything you know either um and uh, funny stories though when you when you think about that uh, in Beslan, uh at the height of the 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 shooting and the bombings going on in in Beslan, I thought oh, my wife will be listening. Well, she'll hear this on the news, and she'll be terribly worried about mm-hmm. me. I'll give her a, a quick a quick call to t- to reassure her I'm okay. And uh, she, uh, I, I gave her the call. She answered, and she said, "I can't talk now. I've lost my parking ticket and hung up." <laughs> <laughs> so there's always there's always the perspective, you know. Yeah. There's there's always other life going on somewhere, mm-hmm. and that can be hard too. You know, you go to a place like Iraq or Afghanistan or, or wherever. I've only been to Afghanistan very briefly. Um, and uh, you go home, that can be really hard because no one actually cares that much about, you know, the stories that you've been totally engrossed in. They don't care that there's been a change of defence minister and that's had a, this, this, this effect and that effect in some country they'd never mm. heard of. Um, life just goes on and, and that can be very... Difficult to accept, but at some point you just got to say, "Well, that's that's a different. That is a different reality, and you know, and not be angry with them because they don't they don't they don't care or they're not passionate about the same things that you are." Um, but it can be difficult when you come back and you know you you slip into the more mundane, what we consider mundane stories. Um, but you know, that's just the way it is, and yeah. you just have to come to an acceptance of that. Let's move to the US. The last four years have really torn that country to pieces. What did you see during your time there? And are you optimistic about the next four years? Ah, this is a very <laughs> difficult one. Depends when you ask. Because um, you moved to the US beginning of 16, was it? Oh, well, I was, there for, I was there for the election. Right. So I was there for the election. Uh, and, and then I was there for um, seven and a half months last year. Right. And that was for the election, but also it turned out to be for COVID and for um, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter and all the other yep. stories that occurred. Extraordinary, yeah. Yeah, 2020 extraordinary. For, now, look, I was an yeah. exchange student in, in America in 1974 right. when I was 17. And what I saw then was a country that had, you know, Republican, Democrat, um, but it didn't define who you who you liked or who you associated with. Mm. Now it does. Mm-hmm. You know, now... It's kind of rare to have a Republican cohort with with Democrat friends. It's so divided, mm. and that's terribly sad for me because uh, it's the country has lost its cohesiveness. I think it's lost its focus, and uh, I, I I don't up until 
very recently, I was very pessimistic about the country. Um, but I'm just hoping that Biden can do enough things that uh, at least a fair percentage of the country think are okay and good for the country, mm -hmm. that they'll think, okay, we are one country, or they can see that they are one country. But, you know, if you talk to some really, you know, hardcore followers of Trump, and I, I spoke to many of them, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to imagine them ever accepting, A, that he isn't the president or shouldn't mm -hmm. be the president, and B, that Biden is anything other than the devil incarnate <laughs> uh, destined to destroy the nation. Yes, uh, with um, socialism or with communism. So, with, with socialism, <laughs> you know, such you know, incredibly radical policies oh, like yes. like medicine for the poor yeah. and this sort of thing, um, stuff that we take for granted here in Australia, mm. which is regarded as rampant, you know, communism out mm. uh, there. Mm. Now, I often got asked the question by Trump supporters: Oh, do you do you have uh, socialist medicine in Australia? Socialist medicine. Socialist medicine, wow. and uh, in their context, yes, we do. You know, we, we, we have a support system. We have a I network. I have no idea. There. That's what I've been taking whenever <laughs> I've been unwell. Oh yes, that's Ooh. right. You've you've you are you've been uh, well, that supported by, a lot. <laughs> by the yeah. That's right. Exactly. You're a, you, you've been receiving communist largesse right in the bucketful. Um, that's why my brothers are Marxists. That's it. That's it. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Yeah, we're all Marxists in Australia. Yes. But yeah, things that we take for granted uh, that uh, we think are, are pretty normal sort of supports, yes. you know, don't necessarily exist. And you'd be surprised at how many people in America think they shouldn't mm. exist and, and uh, you know, see that as the thin edge or the thick edge of the wedge that's uh, going to, you know, designed to, for a communist takeover or whatever. I mean, I've, there are some very wacky theories out there mm. expounded by very decent, nice people. Uh, intelligent people mm. who just happen to have formed these views, you know, uh, partly fueled by, by social media, partly fueled by fake news, as they say, um, but also just by that, uh, that distrust, that fundamental distrust of the other and mm. the other being the Democrats yeah. or, 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 or non-Republicans. Uh, and I, that's very sad to see because, you know, it's a great country. Uh, US, you know, I know people don't, not very fashionable necessarily to say this, but that is, the US is a, a, fab, a fabulous, great country, and it's got a lot of very decent, intelligent, uh, and warm-hearted people uh, who, you know, just at the moment have lost their way, and mm. I just hope they find it. In viewing uh, Trump's first 100 days in office, uh, how do you view uh, <laughs> Biden's first 100 well, days in office, you know, side by side? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Does look, it do either give you hope? Well, look, um, you know, it, it depends. If you're a Trump supporter, you'd say what he did was fantastic mm. and, uh, you know, banning, banning uh, effectively banning uh, Muslim-majority countries' uh, citizens from coming to the States. He pulled out of the first, Paris Climate Accord, I yeah, think, in pulled out the first of 100 days. Pulled yeah. out of that. Um, he Fired uh, a lot of people. Yeah, fired a lot of people. You know, that's that's a prerogative, you know, not, not entirely uh, mm. surprising. Uh, and then you look at Biden and what he's been doing uh, at, a, at a very fast rate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he's probably got the old hundred days, you know, f fixed in their mind. Yeah, that's that's goes in the history he books. Must re he must yeah. recite that. <laughs> that's right. Each day, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What ten things can we do today? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, look, you could not get a more different approach, more different philo you know, coming from a different philosophy, and uh, it's it. it it's assumed, I think, by many now that Trumpism is dead. It's not. It's just having a little rest. 
and uh, the Trump supporters are still there in their millions, tens of millions, and it could reemerge again, and uh, that could be Trump himself or one of his relatives. In another form. And, yeah. you know, it's uh, we could be back there again. And, you know, men, some people watching, listening to this program will say, well, that would be great, and I look forward to that day, mm-hmm. uh, and many others, maybe not so much. I was saying to someone the other day that he's been very quiet. Like I, I haven't, uh, haven't had to type his name very often. I you know, work in news as well, and I, uh, I haven't had to type his name recently. I haven't spoken his name uh, very much at all. But um, what concerns me about that is, I don't know if you've ever been around quite naughty, mischievous children. I've had them. You've had them. Great. I'm sure. Well, then, of course, you have. And have you ever put them in a room and they've been very quiet for a really long period of time? You, that, get, you get very yeah, concerned. What's yeah, going on? Yeah. They're up to something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And look, <laughs> Bit of that. In a sense, there's no great hurry. You see, no. he, he still is the kingmaker. Mm. Um, he can still determine whether a congressman you know, mm. gets endorsed or not mm. uh, or a senator. And so he still has enormous power, you know, even, even if – some of the party now have disassociated themselves. Yeah. Um, he's still got enough to determine the general direction of the party, and uh, he's yes, he's quiet at the moment. But this is you know this is the calm before the mm. uh, Trump storm. And of course, he hasn't got his social media no. <laughs> accounts, that and that's been an enormous problem for him. Um, but he's not in campaign mode. It's too early. Uh, but he's yeah. And as you said, it, it might not gone. be in his, you know, in the form of Trump. But no. uh, I think the public dialogue that he gave such voice to, I don't think that's going to go away anytime no, soon. No, not at all. No. And, you know, we're, we're talking about um, a lot of evangelical Christians in, mm-hmm. in particular. Or, and, and the issue, for, the one issue that really uh, gave him uh, a lot of supporters was abortion. Yeah. It's, it's an issue that is so powerful and so... Uh, contentious in the states in a way that it's just not here in Australia. Uh, it, it's not a, necessarily a totally settled issue here, but it's not um, it's not front and center of people's minds. It is for many Americans, and and when he came out as as pro life, uh, that actually attracted a lot of support, especially from religious groups as well. Uh, you know, people that may not be attracted necessarily to his own. Uh, sense of uh, you know personal morals or whatever uh, along the way, uh, but that one issue has brought him a lot of support, and um, he's hoping, of course, that that ends up uh, Roe Ro versus Wade uh, gets tested in the in in the Supreme Court, which is now, of course, thanks to him, has two more members that are uh, very deeply conservative, and and you know, he hopes and and those that from the religious uh, right that that supported him would hope you know carry through with those promises. Speaking of another world leader with uh, very famous hair, you with all the years that you spent in London, were you very were you perplexed or surprised by the rise and fall and rise again of uh, <laughs> the once mayor by, Boris, Boris Johnson? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually did, I, I've interviewed him. I, I, yeah. I, I did a story on him though, right. for a foreign correspondent. And look, he's a, he's an act, you know, he's mm. he's a he's an act that his uh, where his act is running a little out of steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in a bit of trouble at the moment over uh, the refurb of uh, Number Ten Downing Street. Mm. Did it come out of his pocket or did it come out of uh, uh, other pockets? Um, he's uh, uh, he is very funny. You know, he he at his best, he's a very 
uh, witty and entertaining guy. But does that necessarily make him a good prime minister? You know, that's, that's uh, I guess, a question that uh, Britain answered very emphatically at the last election. Mm. Yes, it does. Um, but I just wonder when it really hits the fan whether he's going to stand and, and be uh, the one that uh, the public says, yeah, he can, he can pull us through this, whatever it is, and whether they still believe him. I think that I think uh, there's a sort of question mark about his authenticity and a question mark about his believability. How destabilising do you think? There's a very important election coming up in Europe, that of the German election. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel is uh, stepping down after 16 years in the job. And there's talk that for the first time there might be a German Greens government elected. How... How do you think that the next uh, the next German election? How important do you think it'll be to the rest of Europe? Can you see it being a destabilizing force or one that actually really brings the continent together in well, a way that it's clearly crying out for at the moment? Well, in some ways, you know, you, you can't have the passing of the mother mm. and uh, have the family still stay as mm. it is. Uh, you know, Angela Merkel has, whether you like her or not, she's been an incredibly um, uh, strong uh, rock uh, and someone that has uh, been pretty consistent all the way through mm. in her beliefs and uh, in her actions. Uh, and I think she will leave a huge hole. Now, how that vacuum is filled is going to be really interesting to see. Um, you've got, uh, you know, possibly Macron in, in mm. trouble in France. Uh with you know some remarkable with, uh, yeah. developments over there. Uh, yeah, exactly. With you know Le Pen on, yes. on the rise there too, and and you know a possible president. Uh, One of his ministers, the, yeah. the recent exchange between him and Marine Le Pen. Yeah, was exactly. Just, yeah, that's right. So you've got you've got some real changing of the guards there, p- potentially, and a remaking of the map. Uh, you've got uh, very uh, right wing governments in in Hungary, in Poland. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if that spreads further. Uh, at the same time, you know, people kind of forget this, but you've you've got a lot of pressure from Russia on on Europe and, and on NATO in particular, and you know that that could that could erupt in uh, ways that we can't foresee at the moment, either in the Baltic states or in Ukraine, where it's where there is actually a low level but still hot war uh, going on. There are all sorts of pressures in Europe. Uh, that can reshape uh, the political geography there, and I don't. I think it's too difficult to predict how that would work itself out and, and how that would change things. Uh, but clearly, with Britain out of the EU, that's that weakens that institution. Uh, if you'd had, you know, a very strong Britain and standing very strongly with Europe, I think uh, that presents a, a pretty a pretty formidable block of uh, political will. Uh, if that's dissipated, then those that are you know, not big fans of the EU or not big fans of NATO might find opportunity to, to erode that uh, power. The world is under, undergoing such rapid change and China plays such a huge role in that change and in our futures mm-hmm. uh, in ways, again, that we can't really predict at the moment uh, and possibly in, in not great ways. Who knows? Um, I do fear for the security of our region. Mm-hmm. I think there are, you know, this big power pressure 
may come to a head at some point, at some some place, you know, possibly Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that talk of you know the beating drums and whatever that we heard is uh, turns out to be uh, overstated. Uh, but you know you've you've got big nations, big egos, um, a lot at stake, and we're kind of we're kind of almost bystanders here. I mean, we've uh, we, we don't have a lot of uh, economical military power, mm. um, but we will feel the consequences very in a very big and deep way if things go south uh, between especially the U.S. and China. Well, traveling the world, you must have a very unique experience of what Australia actually is. What what do you think are Australia's unique strengths and what do you think are our weaknesses? Well, as a nation, I mean, traditionally we've we've actually um, had a pretty good presence on the world stage mm-hmm. uh, with human rights and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we're probably not as strong in those areas as we have been in the mm-hmm. past and we've been a little bit more inward focused than we have in the past. And I don't say that as any criticism of any particular government, mm-hmm. but I just think as a nation, we're more interested in ourselves than, than those outside at the moment. Um, we're still obviously a big player in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, you know, we're, there, there's competition there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's competition for, for influence and space with, with countries that, you know, we traditionally seen ourselves as, as the big brother. Uh, with, with Papua New Guinea and, uh, you know, in, in the Pacific. Um, so that, that's potentially changing too. So I don't think as a nation we can just sit back and expect things to just roll on as normal. I, I fear that there will be change, um, but I don't know in what way and I'm, I'm a bit worried it won't be, it won't be in a very positive way, um, but I hope I'm wrong. Let's end on two big questions. So 40 plus years at the ABC, you must have (laughs) very strong views on its place in the Australian media. What is important to you about the ABC and why do you think it's under attack? Well, I think it plays a pivotal role in the health of the nation's democracy uh, in the, uh, that that old, uh, you know, question that was posed by um, the, the Democrats early in the mm-hmm. piece of keeping the bastards honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not popular with any government. We were never popular mm. with the Labor government when mm. they were in power. Why? Because we question what they do. We, we delve into what they do, more so than when you're in opposition because you're not as relevant. You're not making those decisions that uh, beg the questions. So there's nothing new in that. I think Geraldine, I remember Geraldine Doog saying that um, I think Bob Hawke wanted her sacked after her coverage of the Gulf War in 1991. That's right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. he was furious, absolutely furious. Now, who would ever sack Geraldine Doog? I mean, that that should be a national crime. Yes, I I agree. (laughs) I agree, Phil, I agree. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, Look, the ABC has always been under pressure. Yeah. In some way or another, uh, I think when I joined, uh, there were about five thousand people. I think there are at least a thousand less than that. And you know, this is forty-six years later. Mm-hmm. You'd expect it to grow. Certainly, what we do has has grown exponentially. Uh, what individual journalists do is in a one day is is mor- nothing short of miraculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if people really understood how hard 
ABC and, of course, other journalists in the commercial world as well, how, how hard they actually work and how diligent and honest they are, they might have a different view of the ABC. It's very easy to say, oh, yeah, it's full of lefties and they, mm-hmm. they're all lying and all the rest of it. That's, to be honest, is crap. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been there. I know the people. I know how much they uh, care about accuracy and balance. And, uh, you know, if the ABC were to go, we would lose more than we could imagine uh, in, our, in our national life. And so, you know, if it, if it ever really comes down to the wire, I hope your listeners are at the barricades. I will be because I'm free to do that now <laughs> as, a, as an ex-ABC employee. Uh, it's just it's a beautiful institution to be protected. Lastly, Australia during the COVID pandemic has become a very inward-looking and insular nation. Uh, what lessons from your time travelling the world do you think Australians would be wise to follow? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I just think that um, Australians need to remember, and I'm, this sounds a bit preachy, but they just need to remember they're part of a of a bigger story, mm. of the the story of global humanity, and that in any way that we can help others lift themselves out of whatever hole they're in, we should attempt to do it. I'm not saying give up everything, throw all our money uh, overseas, but just be mindful. You know where where there are humans in need, uh, we have a responsibility as fellow humans to try and help. Phil Williams, it has been. A great, great honour. Thank you so much for joining us in Fourth Estate and thank you for all you have done for the Fourth Estate well, of thank journalism. You, thank you so much and, and thanks to the listeners and, uh, and, and everyone that have been so kind uh, on my retirement uh, saying nice things. A couple of people saying they wished I was going to die a horrible death, but, you know, not many. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> they were so, in the minority. <laughs> they were in the minority. I think there's only sort of 46% said that. Um, no, it's, it's been a wonderful privilege, uh, a great ride, and uh, I'm incredibly grateful both to the ABC and very specifically to the Australian people who funded it all. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you again, Phil. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to For The State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is For The State AU. Many thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. You can catch us next week on For The State. Thank you.